Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. And as we've seen in our study, and just a quick review, we saw that Melchizedek and his priesthood was superior. First of all, because it was a priesthood forever, the Bible says. There was no beginning or ending, but Aaron's priesthood was bound by time. The Levitical priesthood was only involved with time. And you can see this as you study about the book of Leviticus that they had the certain performance of certain ceremonies and certain offerings at certain times of year on a continuing basis, year after year, over and over and over and over and over again. Always bringing back, the Bible says, the remembrance, or the remembrance of the sinfulness of of the people. Every time they offered a new sacrifice, it reminded them that they were sinners and that they needed a blood sacrifice in order to be righteous in the eyes of God, at least until they committed their next sin. Amen. And something we need to understand is that the priesthood of which Jesus is a priest is better because it was confirmed not by the blood of animals, but by an oath. We studied before the fact that when God makes an oath, it is a permanent confirmation, an eternal confirmation. And if you go through the book of Leviticus, God never makes an oath with the Aaron priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was always, always, always intended to be a temporary priesthood. That's why they had different high priests. Amen. Another point we need to understand is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior because it's a priesthood that was founded on personal greatness, whereas the Levitical priesthood was founded upon racial heredity. In other words, if you were not from the lineage of Aaron, just forget about it. You are not going to be a priest. Ever. Period. End of story. You were not going to be a priest if you could not trace your bloodline through Aaron. Something that you can see about the priesthood of Christ is that it's better because death cannot interrupt it. For Jesus lives forever. Amen. Whereas death continually crept in and continually interrupted the Levitical priesthood. Those priests kept on dying all the time. And not only that, but Jesus' priesthood is better because it offered one sacrifice forever. Not an endless repetition of sacrifices. Also, we can see that Jesus' priesthood is better because it was so pure that he did not need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And so it was a holy priesthood in a way that the Levitical priesthood could never be since they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever offer a sacrifice for anybody else. 
Jesus' priesthood we see is superior because it can take men into the presence of God and anchor them there forever. Amen. The Bible says that, that no one who's in God's hand, no devil from hell could ever yank them out of his hand. Amen. Glory to God. That's something the old priesthood could not do. There was always a veil with the Levitical priesthood. But in Christ, that veil has been ripped apart and we have full access to the Father. Glory to God. And then if you go through closing out chapter 7, it's a priesthood that saves to the uttermost, the Bible says, totally and forever, something also that the Levitical priesthood could not do. Amen? So if we read the book of Hebrews from chapter 4 through chapter 7, the word of God clearly shows us the fact that Jesus is a priest. Not just a priest, but a high priest. Not just a high priest, but superior to every other high priest in the old system. And not only is he superior, and we don't want to get only that idea, the idea that he's so superior that we can't even approach him. No, 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 no. He's not only superior so far and beyond and above us, but at the same time, he's touched with our feelings and with our infirmities. Amen? He senses what we sense. He has in all points been tempted just like we do, yet without sin. He never gave in to sin temptation ever. Amen? Glory to God. He is compassionate and personal. And so, though he is the superior high priest, though he is a loftier high priest than any high priest that ever lived, he is at the same time a condescending and compassionate priest. That is a description of our high priest. Amen? Glory to God. And all that leads up to the beginning statement in Hebrews chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken of, everything that I just talked about from Hebrews chapter 4 up through chapter 7, of the things we've just spoken of, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. Glory to God. That's about all we can say to wrap it up. Such a high priest. Of all the things that we just spoke about, this is what you can sum it all up as. We have such as this as our high priest. You know, the Bible chooses amazing descriptive adjectives. Amen? If you go to Ephesians, it says that he's redeemed us because of his great love. You say, oh, Paul, uh, not only just great, I mean, you can use that word great so flippantly, but when the word of God uses a word, it means, the, the true meaning of that word is in its purest sense. It cannot really deal with the problem that we have through the process of language and translations and translations of translations, amen, to where the meaning of the word 
deteriorate. So words used that mean something mean nothing now, and you have to invent new ones. No, it's not like that. The scripture says, we have such a high priest who's superior in every fashion to all the old way of doing things. What a message this is to the Jew. Remember, we're trying to frame the book of Hebrews in the mind and the the eyes of the Jewish people. This is Jesus Christ. This is Yeshua, the Messiah. You don't need any other stuff. That's all, all that stuff is all second rate, second class. For we have such a high priest who can do everything that no other high priest could ever do. And then he goes on and says, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Now, down in verse 6, he says he has a more excellent ministry. In verse 6, he has a better covenant. In verse 6, he has better promises. And he he goes on to talk about that. Amen. We have received a priest that is more excellent than any other. His ministry is more excellent. His covenant is more excellent. His promises are more excellent. Just think of the wonder of the Jewish people as they're reading this section of the letter which was written to them. All of their lives they had, generation after generation, trusted in their Levitical priests. They've been instructed from early childhood to venerate the Levitical system, to venerate the Aaronic priesthood. There was nothing higher in their minds except God himself. It's kind of... It's kind of like how Catholics venerate the Pope. But here comes the word of God to them and says, Listen to this. We've got a high priest to turn to now who passes up all the other ones so that all the other ones are replaced. Not added to, but thrown aside. And Jesus is substituted for them. And a far superior priest he is. Amen. Glory to God. And the one who now comes to God must discard the entire old way of thinking and of doing things. Must drop it all together and come to Christ. It's a similar problem, you see, to kind of similar to the problem of the Galatians when Paul wrote and said, don't go back and get tangled up again with the yoke of bondage that Christ released you from. Have you begun in the Spirit? Are you so foolish that now you're going to walk in the flesh? I mean, the Galatians were trying to get back into legalism. He's saying, just drop that entire system and come to Christ. That's the message. Amen. Brother Bob, what does all this have to do with the blood covenant? Because this covenant was established by the blood of Christ. Amen. But it's important, I'm focusing today on the priesthood so that you get a full grasp and a full understanding of just what just what that means. Amen. For the Spirit has a lot to say about the priesthood of Jesus. But very much more still needs to be said. I mean, in Hebrews 8.1, it just gives us a peek. Amen. I mean, we've been going up 
to put it into analogy, we've been climbing this hill. We've been going up, going up, going up, talking about the blood covenant. Now we're at the priesthood. We're going up. And now we're at the peak. After the peak, you're going to come back down on the other side. Amen. So there's still a lot of good stuff left. Glory to God. That's just, you could say, the, the capstone of the entire meaning of the book of Hebrews. Glory to God. Now in this chapter... And we're going to try and go through all 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 8. So try to stay with me here. I'm not going to hurry because I don't want to skip anything. But you could go deeper. We could spend two, three studies just on Hebrews chapter 8. But I'm going to try and summarize it all uh, in, in this one session. Because the writer gives us three very important points indicating that Jesus is a superior high priest. And these are fantastic points. And, and I thank God that I'm able to share them with you because three points will prove he's a better priest, superior. And those three points are his seat, his sanctuary, and his superior covenant. Amen. I realize that to the Gentile mind, even to my mind, these things don't always just get just drilled into our mind. Let's let the Spirit of God be our teacher and see what it is God wants us to see. Amen. And perhaps if things are not directly applicable to problems we face in the world today, they shall be to those of Israel whom we are called to share Christ with. Amen. First of all, He's a superior priest. Jesus is a superior priest because of his seat. Oh, I just love this. Listen. Now of the things which we've spoken of, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. That's chapter 8, verse 1. We'll just stop right there. Who is seated? Or your Bible might say set, but the actual word means to sit down. He is seated. That's a fantastic statement. And just to make a statement like this to a Jew, the Jew would think, oh, well, then he must need to get up quickly. You see, a priest can't sit down. No priest at any time ever sat down while performing his duties of the priesthood. Jesus has been presented as our great high priest. And now, here comes to the sum total that we can summarize everything about his priesthood. Watch this now. It says, we have spoken. This is of all, the sum of all that we've spoken of. This is the sum. The Greek word there means this is the chief point. This is the apex. This is the peak. The main thing. We've said a lot of great things, but here's the most important point of all. That's what it's saying in the Greek. The most important feature about our high priest is he is sitting down. I don't understand, Brother Bob. Why is that so important? Why is it so important they sit down? <laughs> it's very important. Look, the highest proof of his superiority is that he is sitting down. He's seated. In the Levitical priesthood, they never sat down. If you want to flip over, you don't have to, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says this, Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices. 
which can never take away sins. But this man, says verse 12, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Do you see it? thing is, no priest was ever able to finish his work. He could never sit down. The job was never over. He just kept offering more and more sacrifices day after day after day because the sacrifice you offered was only as good as until the next time you committed a sin. So it just kept going and going and going and going all day long, each and every day. So no priest ever sat down. He may have finished his work, he may have finished his shift for the day at the temple and went home, but he never sat down while he was at work because his job was never finished, amen? Do you know that if you do a study on the tabernacle or the temple, you'll find out there are not any seats there. In the holy place, there's only one seat, and that's the mercy seat. <laughs> and no priest was going to prop himself up on the mercy seat. Oh, man. You talk about getting struck down. That's the absolute epitome of blasphemy, to jump up and sit down on God's mercy seat. Because the mercy seat, you see, represented the throne of God. Oh, the mercy seat was the place where the Shekinah glory of God would dwell between the wings of the cherubim. That's where God was. No priest in his right mind would go in there and just climb up on the mercy seat and sit on God's throne. Oh, I just can't even imagine. You see, the priest would go in there once a year. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat once a year. And the way historical documents describe it, it was in fear and trepidation, as well as a sense of awe. They go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood of the, the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Then they would turn around immediately and get out of there. Being in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies was really walking on dangerous ground. Because if the high priest had any sin in his life, that had not been atoned for, he would die in that room. That's why you know it's, it's tradition says they tied a rope around the ankle of the priest so that if he died, they could drag his body out of there because they couldn't go in and get him. If any priest or if any priest had any sin in his life that had not been atoned for, he would die before the mercy seat. So he didn't want to take a chance. You know, once he offered the blood, uh, sprinkled the blood on the mercy, he left as fast as he could get out of there. Because he didn't want to take a chance of having a sinful thought while in that room with the mercy seat. And he sure wasn't going to jump up there and try it on for size. He knows for sure he would never make it out of, he'd never make it alive out of that room to blaspheme God like that. Amen. That's the only time they could ever go into that place. So there was not any sitting down in there either. Least of all, could anybody ever sit down in the only seat in the entire temple, the mercy seat? That was God's throne. Nobody could sit there but God. And nobody would dare be blasphemous enough to just jump up there and sit down thinking he was sitting with God. 
So we've established the fact that no priest ever sat down. But Jesus came along, offered one sacrifice, and said, that's it. That's what? It's finished. And since it's finished, he finished his work, he sat down. That's what we just read in Hebrews chapter 11. He sat down. He brought men unto God through one sacrifice, and it was the sacrifice of himself. Amen. Christ did it all. The work was finished. As far as your salvation is concerned, folks, he's sitting down. He doesn't need to lift a finger anymore. It's finished. There's nothing to add to it. But yet people are still trying to add to the simple, pure grace of God and salvation by faith. It doesn't need anything added to it, folks. And what an especially joyous truth this would have been to the Jews who read this book of Hebrews. Imagine a final sacrifice, a finished work, finished to the extent that a high priest could sit down. That's fantastic. And if it's not enough, look where he sat. It says he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, God has a big throne, amen? And it's the very same throne that God is on. It's just that he sat on the right side of God. Now, I don't want to split hairs about this. They're all one and the same. It's kind of hard to understand, but... It means it's trying to say the right hand, to emphasize, because the right hand was always the seat of honor. It was always the seat of exaltation, as well as a seat of power. It signified royalty and honor, as well as power. The right arm being the symbol of power. Jesus sat down, as it were, acknowledged and exalted and declared to be royalty by God. So God was, in effect, approving Jesus' work. But there's another absolutely marvelous aspect of this. The idea of sitting on the right hand of the throne brings to mind the expression related to the Sanhedrin. Now, you know, we did a study before. Uh, you remember that in Israel there's a ruling body of 70 men known as the Sanhedrin. These men were, were responsible for making judgments and interpreting law. They were technically the Jewish house of judgment, the supreme court of the land, as it were. They were the ones who were executing justice whenever justice was being executed in the land. And there were always two scribes at all times before the judges of the Sanhedrin. One scribe sat on the right hand, the other scribe on the left. And it was always the business, watch this now, it was always the business of the scribe who was on the right hand to write out the letters of acquittal. And it was always the business of the scribe on the left hand to write out the condemnations. I didn't understand this till I was studying it out. Amen. The Bible says that Jesus came in John chapter 3, verse 17, not to what? condemn the world in other words he wasn't going to be sitting on the left hand of the throne Jesus didn't come to condemn the world but the world through him might be saved hence his place is never on the left hand but always on the right hand where he writes out the pardons 
for his own people that believe on him. Amen? Can you see how all of this is tying together? Little minutia like that just verifies the accuracy of the scripture. What's it saying to us? It's saying that Jesus Christ has been given the place of honor. He's been ushered into the Holy of Holies. He's been seated with God on God's throne. And to a Jew, that's very hard to handle. To an Orthodox Jew, that smacks of terrible blasphemy. But let me go one step further. I want to tell you this. (laughs) As if that wasn't enough to blow your mind. Listen to this one. Oh, I love this. You know the first thing that we're going to be able to do when we get to heaven? We're going to get to go up on that throne too. Well, you're saying, oh, wait a minute, Brother Bob. Wait a minute now. Revelation 3.20 says this. To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. <laughs> See? Glory to God. You say, what well, then's an overcomer? Well, read First John. It's one who overcomes the world. What is it that overcomes the world? Even our what? Our faith. Our faith in him. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are considered overcomers. And all of us who are overcomers can just walk right up there, crawl right up on the throne with Jesus, which is the throne of God. Amen? I seen a picture one time of of when President John Kennedy was in office. And it's a picture in the Oval Office, and he had his son, John Jr. I guess he was about four, so I don't know. But the picture was the son up in daddy's chair, the chair, behind the desk of the most powerful man in America, if not the world. But did little John Jr., was he intimidated by that at all? No. Why? Because he had son privileges that allowed him to sit in that chair. What you or I would be ridiculed for if we just walked into the Oval Office and sat down behind the President's desk, if we did that on our own, it'd be big trouble. But little John, he did it and nobody thought anything of it. Amen? You see, as far as God's throne is concerned, that is something provided for us by Jesus Christ. Something that no priest could ever do himself. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, You come up on my throne as I've come up on my Father's throne. That's exciting, isn't it? You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time when we gather together around the word of god be blessed and remember we serve an awesome god